in your own heart, do you have the assurance of salvation? And like I said, just think about it in your own mind. Do you have assurance? You know, I think a lot of people, if they're asked this question, they might respond with something like, I hope so. I would like to think so. I don't know. Uh, and maybe you can identify with some of those responses. I know that I have, certainly at various points in my life and experience. Um, we're talking about assurance today. We're jumping back into our series of 1 John, and we're going to finish it next week. Uh, we're in 1 John chapter 5, starting in verse 6 this week. But it deals with the issue of the assurance of salvation. And whenever we launch into this topic, there are some people who think about a, a popular teaching called eternal security, uh, better known as once saved, always saved. Something that uh, sometimes gets heavily criticized by people who don't believe in it. Uh, it's the teaching that once you accept, truly accept Jesus into your life, there's nothing that you could do or anybody could do for you to lose your salvation. Um, and while we may have some theological issues with that because of free choice, you may later choose not to follow Jesus and it wouldn't make a lot of sense for God to take you to heaven if you didn't want to be there and didn't love God anymore. Uh, there's a lot that we can gain and, and appreciate from this perspective because proponents of eternal security, they say, and they highlight verses that talk about how, how Jesus wants to hold on to us and keep us, and we don't have to, to doubt our salvation. Uh, and so there's a lot that we can appreciate from this perspective, but then there is the aspect of the, the young person who gives their life to Jesus. And then later on in life, they decide, you know what? I don't want to serve God anymore. Will God take them to heaven kicking and screaming? Would such a person be happy in heaven? Uh, and then, if, if once saved, always saved is correct, then, then why did Paul talk about the need to keep running with endurance? Why did he talk about the need to, to discipline his body so that he doesn't become disqualified? Uh, or why does it say in Revelation that someone can have their name blotted from the book of life? If your name is in the book of life, you're saved. But then why there is that possibility expressed in Scripture that someone could have their name removed? Uh, what we'll find today is, can there be assurance of salvation? Absolutely. But it may, may not be quite as some have understood it before. So open up your Bible if you haven't already. We want to study this passage, 1 John chapter 5. And we're starting in verse 6. Are you there? Say amen. This is the one, well, let's back it up to verse, um, verse 3. This is love for God, to obey his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. For everyone who is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, verse 6. This is the one who came by water, and by blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and by blood. And it's the Spirit who testifies, because it, the Spirit is the truth. So we have a couple elements as we start our passage this morning. We've got water. Jesus came by water, the text says. It also says he came by what else? Blood. And then who else is involved? The Spirit. 
What do you suppose the water represents here? Yeah. Now, there have been different things. If you read commentaries, there are different ideas. But I think the very best explanation, when Jesus came by water, it was when he came by baptism and was baptized at the start of his ministry. Now, why was he baptized? Because he was sinful? Yeah. He didn't get baptized because he needed it. He got baptized as an example for us because he knew we would need it. Amen? That symbol of the cleansing power of God. His ability to take away. And what did John the Baptist say when he saw Jesus walking near the Jordan River, the river I showed you on the screen last week? What did he say? Behold, the Lamb of God. John recognized it at the baptism. This is the one who's going to take away the sin. This is the one who's going to give salvation to the world. Jesus came, and when he was baptized, he was showing the world, I'm going to wash your sins away. And then what did the Holy Spirit do at at the baptism? Yeah, he came in the form of a dove. Now, when we were at the Jordan River a few weeks ago, uh, it was so hot out there that I didn't want to be there for longer than necessary. But So I headed back to to the bus um, before a few of our colleagues did because, you know, our our, uh, tour guide was just keeping us going. You know, we had to keep hopping from one place to the next. But a couple of our colleagues were, were, before they left, they saw a couple of birds near the Jordan River, and they said, look, those are doves. And my friend, who's a big, loves to go birding, and he even had a scope and a tripod that he brought with him to Israel. He's hauling it around from site to site, and he's looking with binoculars. Uh, in addition to looking at the ruins and the archaeology. But they described what they saw to him, and he, he gave them some news they didn't want to hear. He said, those were probably actually pigeons that you saw. Uh, but they were saying, well, for the purpose, they wanted it in their mind to be a dove, because that's what happened when Jesus was baptized. The Holy Spirit came in the form of a dove and landed upon Jesus. And then there was a voice from heaven, and what did the voice say? This is my beloved Son, a booming voice. So we have Jesus the Son, we have the Holy Spirit there, and we have another voice, not coming from the dove, not coming from Jesus, coming from God the Father, saying, this is Jesus, he's my Son, and I'm well pleased in him. And let me just tell you, whenever you are baptized, God is well pleased with you in that moment as well. We saw baptism last weekend, and that was so cool. Maybe some of you will, be, will decide to get baptized or rebaptized in the near future. Um, God's pleased with you now, but there's an extra special pleasure that he takes on your baptism. So Jesus came, first of all, by water. And when he came by water, it was evident he was the Messiah. By what John the Baptist said about him, by the divine voice from heaven, and the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. But then he came by what also? By blood. When did Jesus, in the most dramatic way, experience and come by blood? At the cross. He came by blood at the cross. And what did the blood symbolize? It was real blood that he shed for us, but but what did he say this represented? Represented, basically, the life-giving salvation that he was providing. The water cleanses us of our sins, and the blood forgives us of our sin. 
You know, they've said, um, people who, who know better than I, that there were enough blood cells in the body of Christ for every person who will be saved to have one blood cell, at least. So his blood spiritually was enough to cleanse us, and if you wanted to get literal and physical, there were enough individual blood cells for everybody to have at least one uh, to cleanse us from our sins. So Jesus came by water. He came by blood. Interestingly enough, at the cross, when they wanted to check and see if he was dead, and they jabbed him in the side, what came out of his side? Blood and water. Um, So some have pointed this out also. And then it says it's the Spirit who testifies. You know, the Holy Spirit was pointing to Jesus as our Savior in the Old Testament through the prophets, through the prophecies that then became clear when Jesus pointed them out. The Holy Spirit was testifying through the miracles he was working through Jesus. This is the Messiah. This is the one who's going to save you. And the Holy Spirit today, in our own hearts, testifies. That Greek word there for testify uh, is the same word that we translate as martyr later on. Um, A martyr is somebody who gives the ultimate testimony for who God is, for who Jesus is. And then we get to verse 7. And I'm reading here in the NIV today. It says, for there are three who testify. But if you have like the New King James or the King James translation, it probably says uh, something else, some extra words. It probably says something like, for there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. Now, when I was growing up, I don't know where I heard it from, but somebody said, man, the NIV is bad. It's the not inspired version. Uh, And they said that for a variety of reasons, but one of the things that they pointed to, they said, hey, look up 1 John chapter 5 and verse 7. You know, so you look it up, and in the King James, and the New King James, it says what I said, and then in NIV, well, it doesn't have that there. And so that, for a young boy, that was a little troubling, like, hey, what's going on here? Um, And in fact, probably some of you even had a little note, maybe a footnote in your Bible, um, there, there's some history there. Basically, that phrase um, about t- the three testifying in heaven uh, doesn't appear in any Greek manuscripts until about the 1500s. So uh, the best manuscripts, the oldest ones that we have in the New Testament, and there are like five or 6,000 of them, uh, the early ones don't have that. Uh, now, some people might be troubled by that, and they say, well, how did this get included? And and there's a a longer story, but basically in the 1500s, 16th century, there was a man named Erasmus, and Erasmus was putting together um, his own um, Greek, he was writing a Greek copy of the New Testament using the Latin Vulgate, uh, and he was using some other sources, and he had come across this passage, and there were a couple of copies, not of the Greek, but from the Latin and other things that had this written in the side and the margin by this verse, um, and a couple other things. And people were saying, hey, you should put that phrase in. And he said, no, I don't think that's original. It's, uh, look, it's none of the church fathers talked about it. You know, the first five centuries, none of the early church leaders quoted this passage. 
And he says, all right, if you can find one Greek manuscript that has this phrase in it, then I'll put it in. And sure enough, one was produced. Probably, in my understanding of it is, probably somebody um, produced one at that same time period. Um, and, and so he said, well, okay, since there's this one, I'll, I'll put it in. Now, now, some might be troubled by this story and say, well, what's going on? And then the King James largely relied upon Erasmus's text, and so it got into the King James Version. Um, but most translations today say, you know what, I don't think that's originally part of um, what the Bible said, so we're not going to include it. Now, some, like I said, might be troubled by that. I find that this is very interesting. Uh, in fact, most of your translations will have that footnote. What's neat is today we're able to look at the most ancient manuscripts and figure out the ones that are authentic and the ones that aren't. And so we're able to have all this data to look at. Uh, and where there are minor details, uh, if you have a study Bible, it'll be noted there. But most of the, the, the differences between the manuscripts are like infinitesimally important. They're just very, very small details, a word that's uh, in front of this word or that word, or a minor word that's here or there. And then sometimes you get examples like this that are a little more extended. But here's the point. Whether that phrase is in your Bible or not, the message of Scripture about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit can be taught from the whole Bible. My faith is not based upon one little phrase that has to be there, and if that phrase isn't there, then my faith is shattered. Our faith is based upon comparing line upon line, verse upon verse. Amen? Uh, and what's awesome is that the translators have that honesty to say, you know what? I sure would like it if this verse was in here, because it's kind of a cool one. But I don't think that was a part of the original one, because of all these good reasons. So we're going to include it as a footnote. Um, now, some people are, are dependent just upon one translation. I think all translations have value. And all of them are just simply a translation. It's like those of you that speak Spanish. Sometimes there are phrases in Spanish that you just can't quite get the full sense of when you're trying to tell your English-speaking friends what you're talking about. Have you experienced that or, or whatever language that you speak? Um, in fact, I was talking with this professor who grew up in Germany. And he said, you know what? In Germany, we had um, limited access to some of the writings of Ellen White. They were translated by someone. But he said the translator didn't do a very good job and came across sort of legalistic in some of her writings. And so I grew up with this negative view. But when I came to America and I learned English really well, I started reading her writings in the original language. And he said, I got a completely different picture of the writings of this woman. And I was so totally blessed by what I read. So what he learned was, translations are simply translations. And if you read widely, you get a better perspective than if you just limit yourself to simply one. Now, if I've stirred more questions and created more problems in your mind, talk to me afterward. I'll try and, I'll try and do a better job. But the point is, um, our faith is based upon a wide view of Scripture and not dependent upon one phrase or one verse. Amen? Okay, so there are three that testify. Verse 8, 
the spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three are in agreement. If you go to court and you're trying to prove your case and you have testimony from witnesses, would you want your witnesses to say the same thing or have conflicting testimony? You want them to have the same testimony. I was in court as on jury duty Thursday. I go every other week to Fresno and we have witnesses that come in and they testify. And it's important for that testimony to be consistent with the other details that are involved. And so John says, hey, these witnesses, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit speaking to the prophets, anointing Jesus, uh, speaking to our hearts, the water where he was baptized, that story, that experience, and the blood that he shed for us, these three are in agreement. Number nine, verse nine, if we accept man's testimony, or we accept man's testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it's the testimony of God which he has given about his son. Anyone who believes in the son of God has this testimony in his heart. Anyone who does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because he has not believed the testimony God has given about his son. This word testimony is appearing multiple times, again and again and again. It's like nine or ten times in the Greek in this passage. But it says, not only do we have the testimony of the water, the blood, and the spirit, we also, if we accept Jesus, we have a testimony inside of our hearts, affirming and confirming who Jesus is and what he wants to do. And this is something that, if you haven't experienced God and the power of God in your life, that you won't understand until you do. But can you confirm, like, when you accepted Jesus and as you've been walking with him, that you've had affirmations of God and Christ in your own heart as you've gone along? Has that ex experience happened to anyone? Yeah. Yeah, little moments here and there, answers to prayer, things that only God knew about, and then God answered a prayer in the way that only you knew he could. And God confirms the testimony that Jesus is alive and that he is our Savior and Messiah. And now, we've been using the word testimony a lot, but it hasn't been defined. Look at verse 11. And this is the testimony. You want to know what the testimony is about? Here's the testimony. Here's the witness. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. So all this time, talking about the water, the blood, and the Spirit, they are pointing us to one fact. And the fact is that God has given us eternal life. And he did that through Jesus. Is that good news? That's the best news possible. And it's based upon not just one witness, multiple witnesses. You know, in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 17, it talks about how you, the, if you're going to convict someone, it has to be on the mouth the testimony of two or three witnesses. So God is trying to convince us of something. It's almost like we're in the jury box. And he's trying to let us know that he loves us, that he wants to save us, and that the way to salvation is through Jesus. And so he brings up his first witness. And the first witness is the water that Jesus was baptized in, the experience. And that water says, hey, Jesus was here. He was baptized. And John the Baptist recognized Jesus as Messiah. And God the Father's voice spoke and said, this is the Messiah. And the Holy Spirit came down upon Jesus, saying that he was the Messiah, that, that he wanted to save people. And the first witness, the water, affirms that God wants to save you. 
And then God calls up the next witness, and it's the blood of Jesus. And we're thinking metaphorically here. And the blood of Jesus gets up and says, I was shed for the explicit purpose of saving everybody that was in this church. Saving everybody that was in the world. I was spilled out onto the ground so that sinners could be cleansed and forgiven. And then God calls up the Holy Spirit into the witness stand. And the Holy Spirit says, I can confirm Jesus is the Messiah. And he provided salvation. And I've been speaking to the hearts of the believers in their own lives. And I've been speaking through the prophets of the Bible, letting people know, I want to save everybody. Is God trying to communicate a message? He's trying to let you know that he loves you and he wants to save you. And there's no sin so bad that you can commit that he can't forgive. There's no distance too far that you can go that he can't save you from. His arm is not shortened so that he cannot save. The testimony of each witness says God loves you and has provided salvation for all who want it. So how do we know if we have it? Verse 12. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. It's kind of like a math equation. Jesus, have Jesus, equals have life. Have no Jesus equals not having life. We try and make theology too complicated sometimes. But in its most basic element, if you're saved or not, hangs on the question of this. Do you have Jesus? How do you know if you have Jesus? Well, it starts like this. You say, Lord Jesus, I want you to be in my life. I want you to be in my heart. I can't save myself. I've tried and it didn't work. Please come into me, fill me, save me. Make me yours. Whatever words you want to put on it. But the idea is accepting and letting him in. So have you? Have you opened up that door? You know, as we discussed earlier, it's not something that you simply want to do once when you were 12 years old at summer camp. That's good. But what about today? What about recently? Have you reaffirmed that decision? Because Paul says we want to run that race with endurance. We want to keep on pressing towards the goal. We want to affirm our choice of last year, last week, yesterday. We want to affirm it today. And again, say, Jesus, I need you in my life. I want you in my life. Please save me. Bring me to your kingdom. Now, some people are worried. Uh, they say, well, shouldn't we not say the words that I am saved? They, they read that somewhere. Uh, by the way, the place you read that, it was in the context of saying it arrogantly or saying it in such a way that you feel no need of staying connected to God so that you fall away. Because the reality is, Jesus said in Matthew 7, many will come to me on that day, the, the return of, of him, saying, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we do all these things in your name? So there'll be people who thought they were saved, but Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. 
So yeah, we want to be careful against proclaiming I am saved in such a way that it leads us to take our eyes off of Jesus. But, but look at what the next verse says. It gives us the assurance that we can say we are saved. Look at verse 13. I write these things to you who believe on the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Can we have a certainty in Jesus? Absolutely. We can have that confidence that if we have accepted Jesus, we are saved. We are secure in Him. And here's what I like to say. I like to say it like this. I am saved. I'm being saved. And I will be saved. You know, we talk about those words justification, sanctification, and glorification. Justification is God making you right with Him. When you do that, you accept Christ and His forgiveness. You're justified. You're saved. And then day by day as you continue that and you let the Holy Spirit into your life to change you and make you more like Jesus, you're being saved. And then one day when we're totally separated from the presence of sin, when God consumes it, we're glorified finally. We will be saved. I am saved, I'm being saved, and I will be saved. It's an expression that allows for humility this expression that allows for onward growth and, and the need of a day-by-day experience, but it's an expression that looks to Jesus and the salvation he has provided and says, Jesus is enough for my sin. His life in place of my life, I am saved. I tell you what, when you have that assurance in your life, you can just kind of relax more. You can relax more, trusting not in yourself, but trusting in who Jesus is. Trusting him to help you to keep on growing. Trusting him to take you all the way to the kingdom. Someday soon, we hope. You know, when I was young, I used to struggle with feeling forgiven by God. I would confess my sins, but I wouldn't feel forgiven. And I would just feel this guilt or, or, or shame. And, and, and as I grew, I, I started to learn more and, and grow more in my understanding and realized that if you confess your sins, they're forgiven. Amen? Amen? The devil likes to bring them back, though. In fact, I was just reminded of a guy named Buddy Hotelling. He's a dentist in Michigan that writes songs. And he wrote a song about deep sea diving. And he says, we give our sins to God He casts them into the bottomless uh, ocean, or the bottom of the ocean, into the Mariana Trench. That's where literal sin is. Just kidding. In this metaphor. But but Buddy said, we try and go down deep sea diving and get our sins back up. And God says, no, no, no. I've buried them on the bottom of the ocean floor. Just leave them there. Leave that old way behind. And I'm so glad that today that I don't struggle like I did in that same way. God has set me free from that. If God has said it, we should believe it. Otherwise, John says we're calling God a liar. Now, what, we, what I have learned is that sometimes 
I still feel ashamed of things I've done in the past, but there's a difference between guilt and shame, right? I may be embarrassed for what I did, but that doesn't mean that I'm not forgiven. That just means that I wish I hadn't have done what I did. But I can move on and make new decisions in my life. But my dad told me something that really helped me out. And I'm going to end with this. He said, salvation is like a, an elevator. It's like an elevator. It's not a perfect illustration, but let me explain it to you. Salvation is like going into an elevator. Jesus is the elevator. We push the button, doors open up, Jesus invites us in, and we say, uh, I'm coming in. So we step in to this salvation experience with Jesus. We are saved in the elevator. And he says, all right, by the way, we're in the basement, but I want to take you up to the top. I got a very special place on the top of this building I want to take you to. It's called heaven, right? So we start going up. But on our way up, we uh, get a little distracted, and we stumble, and we fall down in the elevator. This is a symbol of sin, right? If you fall down in an elevator, are you still going up? Yeah. So, so we fall down. Jesus helps us back up again. And we might fall a lot, but Jesus keeps helping us up. As long as you stay in the elevator, are you going to keep going up? Yeah. Now, what would happen for you to not go up? Under what circumstances would you stop going up? Yeah, if you just say, hey, I'm done with this. You push the button and you walk out of the elevator. Are you going up anymore? No. Now, could you push the button and get back in again? Yeah. So Jesus is always there. There are some people who at a young age got in the elevator with God. But then along their life, whatever reason, they decided that's not what they wanted anymore, and they walked away from it. They're now living out of that salvation experience. But as long as they live, the elevator is already open. You don't have to even push the button. The doors are already open, and Jesus is saying, come on back in. Come on back in. But sometimes as Christians, we, we struggle with assurance because we realize we're not perfect. And we think, man, I was, I was saved earlier this morning, and then I got mad and, and had some mean thoughts in my head, and so now I'm not saved again, and I better pray before I get, die, you know, like before I get in a car accident and die, otherwise I'm going to be lost forever. Yeah, but I don't think that's how the gospel is. Now, certainly, sin is dangerous, and sin should be avoided as much as we can. But we have a God that looks at the tendency of our life. Uh, and if for some reason, God forbid, one of us were to get in a car accident uh, without having had a chance to confess our sin that we had just committed in our mind, I think our God is powerful enough and his blood is powerful enough to cleanse us by faith. So that's like if you fall down in the elevator, but you let Jesus get you back up again, you're still safe in the elevator. You're going up. You are saved. You're being saved. And one day, you will be saved. So here's the question. Are you in the elevator today? Have you made that choice again? 
Let's just remind Jesus we want to stay in the elevator today. And let's thank him for the wonderful, blessed assurance that we have because of the water, the blood, and the Holy Spirit, what Jesus has done for us. Let's pray. Thank you so much, dear Father, that we can be joyful Christians. We can have confidence, not in ourselves, but confidence in your ability to save us. Lord, I recognize that all of us still struggle. We all have, have issues in our life. But again today we say, Lord, I want you to help me stay in this elevator. I want to keep growing. And when I fall down, I want to get back up again. And I'm so thankful for this confidence that we have in you. Lord, please give us opportunities this week to share this joy and assurance with someone else. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Let all God's saved children say, Amen. Amen.